came back. So <laughs> things are looking better around here. <laughs> I am uh, very humbled by the opportunity to be here at all, much less to uh, be back a second week. Uh, it has been my habit, as Drake has done, and as I was trained, and I still believe firmly that the exposition of the Word of God as the Holy Spirit inspired it is the model to follow, the way we study and the way we teach uh, the book. Each of these is a unit. And I'm always amazed that when someone considers the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in regards to the authorship of the New Testament or the Old Testament, that quite frankly, it's a meandering way in which the Bible is often taught. But the discipline, Drake, and you've exhibited, and I know that you care about, and I'm sure the people uh, going through Romans with you now are seeing these books are beautifully written in the form in which we receive them. So I'm taking a risk, and you know this, of doing a series on something that crosses a lot of passages, like this imputation discussion. So I'm always a little uncomfortable doing what is called something topical. I always feel much better going through a passage. But I also um, wanted to make sure that if there's that moment where we might be able to take a little bit of a parenthesis, which is what I feel like I am to Drake, and that being to talk about some of the essentials. If you can imagine a few things that hold all other things together, much like that great poem, For Lack of a Nail. I think it's been attributed to Benjamin Franklin. And it goes something of this order. For lack of a nail, the shoe was lost. For lack of a shoe, the rider was lost. For lack of a rider, the battle was lost. And for lack of a, a battle, the kingdom was lost. All for the lack of a nail. Have you ever noticed that there's that one thing that comes undone and everything else comes apart because of it? Have you ever had that happen in your life? Where you had one little bitty misstep and it just became a cascade of events and you go, how did I end up in the mess I am? Maybe it was the uneven tires that uh, suddenly... Uh, begin to wobble and then you lose control and the next thing you know it's just, just a cascade of things and you end up how did we get there or something you had you ever gotten dressed excuse me I'm just going to be really kind of straightforward here have you this is really silly and guys some of you can appreciate that in your blue blazers which by the way some of you have you know dressed appropriately today have you ever brushed your teeth in your blue blazer so some of you are like, who would do that? Well, you ever right at the minute you're walking out the door and you get something on you and you go, I've got to start all over. I mean, these little things. I feel like there's this simple, and then there could be catastrophic things that come from small things. A chunk of ice the size of a, what we used to call briefcase. I don't know that anybody even knows what that is anymore. <laughs> the chunk of an ice the size of a briefcase fell off the space shuttle in 03 on takeoff, and it hit the leading edge of the wing, unbeknownst to the astronauts and those back at uh, Cape Canaveral, punched a hole in the wing, just a chunk of ice. And while they were bound in their mission and they're returning, all the instrumentations in the left wing went off. And they're gliding back into the atmosphere in southeast Texas on February the 1st, 2003. 
And all the instrumentations went off, and suddenly the wheels in the left wing that were about to be deployed for landing burst. And the man in charge of the wheels said, I've lost pressure on the left side. All for a chunk of ice the size of a briefcase. We lost the space shuttle. Because it burned up on reentry when it began to come apart. Later it was discovered that, and I've talked to one man in particular that knew this to be the case, they knew that there had been a hole punched in the wing. And they could have turned one of the spy satellites cameras on the wing in its orbit and discovered the condition, but they didn't want the world to know that they could do that. So they said nothing. And did nothing. Because they didn't believe that a spacewalk would have been sufficient enough to seal the hole. So on reentry, essentially seven astronauts were sacrificed to a chunk of ice the size of a briefcase. The little things that go right by us. Moonlight Graham in the great movie Field of Dreams said it's those little things that go right past us like somebody passing us on the street. We never realize the most important moments of our life until they're gone. Have we noticed the little things? One of those little things that we tend to just go right by are these three imputations that, if I can make it clear, might hold the three most important theological truths in place. And they build one upon the other inseparably. The first establishes that sin is in the world and it's pervasive. The second one addresses the problem of sin and its pervasiveness. And who is qualified to address that is only one person in the history of the world. And then what's the next effect we'll look at next week when we look at the third great imputation? And that is, is what do we do now with this amazing salvation that we have? So the first looks at sin, and that is the imputation of Adam's sin, our sin, we sinned, Jesus charged, I'm sorry, God charged it to mankind. We are sinners by that. It was imputed to us or charged to us, and then it became our nature. We're born into that, and we need a Savior. The second great imputation is today. That one is, if I could say the first is from one to many, then we're going to reverse it today from the many one. It's going to move from many or all to one. Mankind to Jesus. The imputation of the sin of mankind to Jesus Christ. And then next week, we'll look at the conclusion with regard to salvation, and that is, the, this is glorious. They're all glorious because it's true. Our condition has been addressed, and now salvation is ours by faith alone, and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us by faith alone. And the marvelous ideas that these convey, these nails that hold the shoe on the horse of our theological thinking, the thing that protects us from faulty thinking and keeps us from anything that is presented by a worldly system that takes us from the truth of God's word. And that is what God has done 
in creating his image. And when we fail, he's going to restore us and redeem us and reconcile us to himself. And there is no substitute for our Savior, and there is nothing we can do to satisfy and nothing we can do to receive what he gives us in the righteousness that is by faith alone. Those are the centerpieces of the Christian faith. But I want to dig a little deeper, if you don't mind, into the second one, which is the satisfaction. So I want to kind of tie that up a little tighter. I also want to make sure that I kind of circle back a little bit of things that I left hanging last week. I wasn't very satisfied with it, so you can see uh, try to do a little bit. Drake, you ever done that? You go, man, I wish I would said it this way. Last week I referenced um, a couple of things that I want to come back to. One of those is that you can't blame others for your sin. And I spent quite a bit of time talking about family and how it's become a very commonplace idea that somehow we can fix the things that are wrong with us on someone else, namely our family. Maybe it's someone else. Maybe it's not your family. But you, if you look anywhere else, you're missing the most important thing, and that is God is looking at us. He's looking at us and what we do. Would you turn to an obscure proverb in the book of Ezekiel? Go to chapter 18, if you don't mind. This actually will show up in another place, and evidently it was pretty popular in the day because it also shows up in the book of Jeremiah, which is indicative then. It was kind of a commonplace. But this particular proverb um, has actually, it's a little bit of a... Um, well, I say proverb, it was common. And uh, it was something that was evidently used enough, and Ezekiel finally says, no more. Y'all can't say this anymore. So here in Ezekiel chapter 18, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying, the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. Now that sounds peculiar. So let's do it this way. Imagine that your father eats something that if you and I were to eat it, we would feel that, that, that odd thing similar to eating a lemon. You ever see those videos of babies when they first eat a lemon? Why do we laugh at something so funny at this face that they make? It's like, oh, and they, they do all this stuff. We were, my wife and I were watching a video this past weekend. Wait, it's still the weekend. What am I talking about? <laughs> and some friends of ours had given their, their only child, their firstborn, um, what I thought was a lemon. It turns out it was an orange. But for a moment, I was expecting this reaction of the baby. We've all seen it. I was guilty of doing it with my son and my daughter. And I took great delight in those faces. Um, but imagine it this way. The father eats the sour grapes and it impacts the children. What the parent does, the kids are paying for. That's what the proverb says. And evidently it was so common in the land of Israel, the, the prophet spoke to it specifically. Ezekiel had said to the country what God thinks of that proverb, verse 3. As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. It's now banned speech. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. 
You can't blame anybody else for it. Make sense? Can't blame your parents. A few years ago, a band by the name of the Eagles said it this way in their song, Get Over It. I turn on the tube. What do I see? A whole lot of people crying, don't blame me. Does that sound like I'm rapping? That sounds fun. They point their crooked little fingers at everybody else, spend all their time feeling sorry for themselves, victim of this, victim of that, your mama's too thin and your daddy's too fat. Now, how is it that old rock and rollers are so irritable by the fact that everybody's blaming everybody else for their stuff? Maybe there's a lack of accountability that even people that don't know Christ are saying, wait a minute, what's going on? So the, the first thing is we can't blame others for our own sin. There may be influences and there may be cause, and there's definitely cautions in regard to Jesus' ministry about the blind leading the blind. And, and, and what a millstone would land around someone's neck if you were to mislead children with false teaching. And he directly addressed the Pharisees. It wasn't just children, it was people in the false teaching. So yeah, there's, there's another issue that we can deal with. But in particular, as it deals with our relationship with God, we have to face him in our own guilt. And now we can do business with him. Is that, is that fair enough? Are we clear enough on that? A second caution I want to offer, didn't say it enough last week, I'm going to say it now. There's another thing that we have to be careful of is attributing physical maladies specifically to, to sins. And the reason I point this out is there's been a, a, a history of the church dealing with the reason something bad happened to you is for some unknown, unconfessed sin you're engaged with, and we can easily move into a sin-hunting in, endeavor to try to figure out, why am I suffering? It's the book of Job and his friends. But it's become more current in some of our prosperity gospel teaching that God wants you healthy and happy, and anything that you're not means there's a sin problem with you. And it can be a very, very wearisome and difficult thing to deal with. My mother, as I mentioned face cancer, um, which took her life, and immediately you start imagining, is this my DNA code or was there sin in her life? Can you imagine that someone is carrying the burden not only of their physical illness, but suddenly they're having to deal with a spiritual judgment that they wonder, what did I do wrong? I don't ask this question to seek an answer, but I ask this question because of the nature of if you've lost a child at some point during the pregnancy, almost every mother, every woman who wants to have a child, who's lost a child, asks the question, what did I do wrong? It's our natural sense of grabbing tremendous responsibility, sometimes when it's not even ours. So it's a caution. I'm not saying what it is. I'm just saying it's a caution. It showed up in John chapter 9. When they finally brought this man who had been blind from birth, and Jesus had healed him. And the question is, well, was he blind from birth because of his sin or his parents' sin? There's the attribution immediately. If there's a physical malady, it had to be from sin. Maybe it's generational. What was Jesus' answer? Neither. This is for his glory, for God's glory. 
So how do we, how do we deal with these? T- if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, or if you go to James chapter 5, if you go to 1 John chapter 5, we see that there is the chastisement of the sinful believer, but the danger is ascribing a particular sin to a particular physical malady. Sin will kill us. That's a known. So the reason I bring this up is because the fault finding we are so prone to do doesn't help us. I think it's always good, as Paul taught in Ephesians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, examine ourselves. That's a good thing. The, the silence beginning at the prayer. Every time I've been here, I'm so thankful for the silence at the beginning of the prayer. Because you know what it does? It's so uncommon. It is that moment where you become centered on my relationship and in, in my prayer to my God is a focus, not words, not anything. And then I feel prepared to hear the the pastoral prayer. It's me and the Lord. It's you and the Lord. It's a starting place. I'm so thankful for that practice and that habit. There was a time when I was teaching a class in Frisco at our home church, and I was the substitute and eventually became the teacher of that class. But they had prayer time. The class was 40 minutes in length. The prayer time was 35, and of the 35, 30 was just talking about the prayer request and not praying. So I said, do y'all mind if I, we rearrange that? <laughs> can, we, can we redo the clock? And we went to silence, and it was amazing to see what happened. We prayed, and we prayed for a longer period of time, and I'm not trying to do this. I'm just saying there's that moment where it's you and the Lord. So I'm grateful that we can come to the place where we'll say, Lord, there's sin in my life. There's sin in the world I'm dealing with. I trust you to deal with these things. And what did he do? He answered back with Jesus. So if I could say it this way, sin entered the world through one man and through sin, death spread to all men because all sinned, we die for our own sin. That's the conclusion. Well, I want to say one more thing, and that is, actually, I'm going to say a lot of things. I'm going to now move to the next thing. I had the opportunity years ago to attend a a lecture by one of my favorite writers. Um, I found him when I was at Dallas Seminary. His name is Peter Kreft, a professor of of philosophy, of philosophy at Boston College. And Peter writes in a, in a style called the Socratic Method, and it's a, Socrates shows up in various places in his books. And the first book he ever wrote was actually called Between Heaven and Hell. This is the most popular back in the early 80s. And it was a fanciful conversation that was imagined between three men, all of whom died the same day. The three men represented three worldviews, all of which are in conflict. They were then, and they still are today. The first man you're going to know who died on November 22nd, 1963. And that would be our president, John F. Kennedy. But there were two other men also well-known who died that day. Kennedy represented what would be considered liberal Christianity from a Catholic perspective. Peter Kraft's Catholic, teaches at Boston College. The second man who died that day was representing what would be atheistic philosophy, Aldous Huxley, a philosopher, 
died that day. The third person that died on the exact same day, you're going to know better than the other two, and you're going to be shocked that he died the same day as Kennedy. And you didn't even know it. The New York Times didn't publish it for two more days because of the Kennedy news and news coming over from, are you ready for this? The UK that C.S. Lewis died on November the 22nd, 1963. He, in Kreft's work, Between Heaven and Hell, has Lewis as the voice of Christianity in the conflict with these other two men. So I read that book in the early 80s, and then I read subsequent books, and then finally I was able to go and hear Peter in person at my alma mater, SMU. I was so excited, and somehow or another he was going to read a, a section of his newest book that was coming out. And I was so excited because I got to see him first in person, and then I was going to get to meet him, which I did. And somehow or another, I ended up with a copy of the manuscript of his new book from which he read during the session. What was most interesting is not what he wrote in the text of the book. It's that the manuscript he wrote had comments in the margin from his editor. And then, in addition to the comments from the editor challenging some things he had said, Peter Kreft wrote in response to the editor's comments. In other words, now I see the dialogue between the two around the text. And it stuck in my head. I was more interested in the marginal notes than I was in the book itself. Have you ever done that where you got interested in the side comment and went, wait, that's the really cool part. Yeah, I know about all that stuff. Yeah, it's a great book. But I was, I was interested to see how they thought about what was happening as they talked among themselves about what was happening. All right, here we go. I'm going I'm to take a big shot here. What if we looked at the second imputation the same way? What if we considered the conversation between the father and the son about what the son was going to do to submit to his father's will to die for the sin of the world? What would it be like to listen in to a conversation, at least one side in most of the conditions, of the son saying something to his father, or the father saying something about the son, and we have this inside story, these marginal notes to the text that peel back this relationship, this mysterious relationship of the Trinity talking. You ready for this? About dying for our sin. What would that be like? Did you know we have it? Would y'all mind an experiment? Would you mind if I took a chance and we looked at these messages between the Father and the Son and just arced that all the way from the beginning of Jesus' ministry until the end? Can we do that? Are you up for it? Okay, get your fingers ready. Get your fingers ready. Let's go to Matthew 3, all right? Make sure we go to Matthew 3. You know, the moment I say that, I'm going to reference Isaiah. Don't go there. I'm going to reference it because I want you to know it's not just the New Testament. This was long in coming. This is what Isaiah prophesied. Listen to this language. 
Who has believed our message? Isaiah 53. Don't turn there. I'm just going to read. Who has believed our message? In verse 1. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, of men of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I want you to hold on to the word sorrows and grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised. And he, we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of, or for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused. You ready for this? The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You know what the word for that is? Imputation. Charged. Guilty. That's Isaiah's prophecy from 53, the suffering servant, verses 1 through 6. But as we look not only at the prophetic idea that's coming, we get a chance in Matthew to see it unfold before our eyes from an eyewitness or two. So Matthew chapter 3, let's go there. This is the opening. This is the baptism as the occasion. But I want us to listen or at least see the words of what was spoken that day at the waters of the Jordan. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. We're going to go right past these to gather up the stories. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That was the voice that came from heaven affirming that John had baptized the one. And that's how John knew who it was. The Spirit would come down. We'll see this in a little bit. But the point is, that voice affirmed that this is my son. Let's go to, if you don't mind, let's go now to Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew 17, there's a moment where Jesus is going to pull together Peter, James, and John, the most intimate of the, of the disciples, and they are going to go up on a mount, and they're going to see something that's going to be very impactful. I'm going to read a little bit longer section by way of context, beginning in verse 1. Six days later, this is after things that had taken place in 16, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. So the three get to see the three. In conversation. We don't have a full explanation of what the conversation among the three was, but we do hear another voice in the story. 
Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He's ready to set up worship. Now, can I say as I think I should, Moses represents the law bearing witness to Jesus, and Elijah is representing the prophets bearing witness to Jesus, and thus the, prophet, the law and the prophets are bearing witness to Jesus. On the road to Emmaus, we will learn that Jesus will tell the people walking with him how all things that were written are pointing to him. Obviously, we see it here. We'll see it again in, in a little bit later in our time together this morning. But there's another voice, verse 5. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The same as what you heard before from the waters of the Jordan. Do you mind? Let's go to John chapter 11. Have you ever wondered about what it was like to be Isaac, the day that he and Abraham were walking along the road and they were going to sacrifice a lamb? From Isaac's position as the son, Abraham is doing something odd. They're walking to do a sacrifice, but there is no lamb. And it's the son who's looking up going, you got the knife, but where's the lamb? Isaac has no idea that God had said, you have to sacrifice your son. Isaac has no idea. What an amazing thought for then Abraham to say, what does he say about it? He will supply, he will provide the lamb. And just about the time he raises the knife, God says stop. And what is in the bush? The lamb. That's the mystery of this great faith of Abraham. What's shocking to me? Isaac didn't know. Jesus did know. And he's going forward in his ministry, hearing his father's voice, knowing that others now are hearing the voice, affirming what they're going to do, and they walk along. So we're going to see now in John's gospel some moments where there's some real passion or real grief that's attached to what Jesus does. Verse, I said, John 11, excuse me. Let's go to verse 42. This is at the conclusion of the miracle of the healing of Lazarus, Jesus' last miracle. And there has been intense emotion, maybe the most emotional section that we could ever see about Jesus. So, so heavy was his grief, and so sorrowful was his heart. The language says Jesus wept, but the power of that idea is so strong, it's almost as if he burst into tears which is a mystery to me because he knew everything that was happening. He waited to get there. He said, it's better that I wasn't here. He knew how things were going to turn out. He says it to the disciples, but at the moment, it's almost as if he took on the full weight of suffering and death. And you see a preview about what's to happen. But in this particular moment, the stone is going to be rolled away. Lazarus is not going to stink like Martha thought. 
Look at verse 41. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing here or standing around, I said, I said it so they may believe that you sent me. I'm fascinated by this public address that Jesus makes by way of prayer so that they could hear him praying. And I'm sure, if you don't mind me conjecturing for just a bit, that the sincerity of that prayer was so true, they recognized it immediately to be real and authentic and heartfelt. Given the moment of what was happening, he will call Lazarus out. I've always enjoyed the fact that he calls Lazarus come forth because if he didn't name him specifically, everyone in the tombs would have come out. That cracks me up to think about that. You better be specific. Okay, Lazarus, you can come. The rest of y'all, I'll get you later. Let's go to John chapter 12 now. This one is the conclusion, essentially, of his ministry. It's going to land in his week of passion. I think the timing of this is amazing that we're in the season of Lent. We're approaching Easter. But in John chapter 12, Jesus says, in verse 27, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He positions, deliver me from this moment. I don't want to go through it. So it seems. But for this person I came to, excuse me, for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name is now his prayer. I don't know that there's any more clear idea than to say, for this is the reason I'm here. Have you ever felt so strongly about anything you've ever done as to say, this is the reason I'm here? I hope you have. You know why? Because there is nothing more glorious to live in reflection of God's calling and his gifts of your life than to know your purpose and to be about the things that are your unique calling. This is why you're here. Jesus will say to Pilate in chapter 18, for this reason I came into the world and for this reason I was born, to bear witness to the truth. It's amazing. He talks about his own birth only one time. And he's dealing with Pilate. I've come to bear witness to the truth. And you know what Pilate said? The famous, what is truth? It wasn't a philosophical statement. Wasn't a question. Jesus didn't answer his, his question. But here, he's troubled. What shall I say? It's amazing. For this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came of heaven, or came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. In other words, this moment of grief, this troubled soul, and he calls out and the father has answered. It's been glorified and it will be. Confirming, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. You with me? Isn't that amazing to think about? Let's keep going. John chapter 17. I want to make sure that we do justice to this 
amazing prayer. I will not read all of it. I encourage you to do so. It's the longest of Jesus' prayer. Uh, we often go to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, our Father who art in heaven. But if we look at that, that's the disciples' prayer. Jesus is asked to teach us how to pray. As far as the Lord's Prayer is concerned, this is the prayer of the Son to the Father. And it speaks of a number of things, in particular about our own relationship to him and our relationship to each other. So Jesus spoke these things, John 17, 1. And lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have, me, have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself in the glory which I had with you before the world was. Imagine that. Imagine that. He left that glory to take on flesh, to take on sin to tell us to tell us this it's amazing i've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world they are yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you for the words which you gave me, I've given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I have come forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I'll stop right there. I encourage you to read the rest. But what an intimate portrait of the relationship of the son praying on behalf of us to his father it's jesus's glorious priestly prayer that's the night before he died that would have been thursday night before good friday but after that prayer he went across the kidron valley and up the slopes of the mount of olives and if you will turn with me to matthew chapter 26 so let's go back, but we're going forward in time. Jesus came with him to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, I'm in verse 36. Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which we know, of course, to be James and John, and became or began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I don't know that I can emphasize the importance of this properly, but for the son to say, if it is possible, almost presents this as a hypothetical reality. And what I want to propose is this window into this sentence structure 
is to demonstrate the reality of the humanity of Jesus is absorbing the full weight of what's about to happen next. You know what's about to happen next is not the cross, but a series of events that will lead to the cross. And the first of those events is the betrayal of him by Judas and the marching feet of the soldiers who've come to arrest him. This is a moment right before that happened. And now he's looking at knowing this is the end of his freedom. He was free to go to the garden. He will not leave free. This is a turning point for all things. For lack of this, the poem may read differently. What happened if it was possible the cup would pass? There would be no reconciliation for saints. There would be no satisfaction of the judge. There would be no solution to the sin problem. This is a point that Jesus, bearing the weight of his humanity, knowing the fullness of his, as Isaiah said, his carry, he is bearing the burden of the sin of mankind. Not just those that lived then, but all who had lived before, and in our situation, all who lived after. And then he submits. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He knew that himself. He went away again a second time praying, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. It's the same thing. So he said it twice. He comes back. He came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Three times Jesus prays the same thing. So severe is his struggle, Luke tells us that an angel came to minister to him in the midst of this. If I do the, the comparison, I see this amazing thing. Luke also adds, so grievous was his suffering. While he's praying, he's sweating so profusely, it's as if somehow he'd been cut and he was dripping blood. It wasn't blood that he was dripping. It was as if it was like that. We typically sweat runs on our face. It doesn't drip. Blood drips. So it was, it was agony that he was in. I can't help but think of the Garden of Eden. That Adam, who was to work the garden, is suddenly now sinned and removed from the garden. And everything he would do for the rest of his life and for our experience is that we will work by the sweat of the brow. Literally, the eyes are designed in such a way that when we bend over and our face is covered in sweat, it will go around our eyes and it will drip off our nose. Literally, the language is such that you will work by the sweat of a dripping nose. Isn't that crazy to think about? Yeah, it's been a while since I've been that sweaty. <laughs> but you know what? It's a mark of sin because you know what that nose was used for in the earlier chapter in Genesis? That's where CPR was when God breathed into his nostrils and he became a living being. What a turn of futility. 
The place of God's breath becomes the place of Adam's futility. And here, Jesus sweating so profusely, it's going to undo that first garden experience in this now, the Garden of Gethsemane. The futility of man and the issue of sin is about to be dealt with. And it's this sweating Savior, grieved, adorned by the angels to get him through the moment. Well, as it turns out, the prayer is over. And he came to them and he said, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of the sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And the soldiers came. And Judas kissed him, identifying him as the Savior. Well, as it turns out, the moment has such an idea that that cup would not stay full. That cup would be drained of its judgment. He submitted to the Father's will. But the evening would fall, the torture began. The morning would arise, Peter would deny him before the the rooster would crow, and now he's alone. And he's on the cross. So we go forward to Matthew 27. We're reaching the end of the comments that the two of them would have with each other. Chapter 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Somewhere between 12 and 3, depending on how the, the dating looks or the timing is. The most significant thing is not the, day of the, t- the, the time of day, but which hour it's called. And I'll show you why in just a moment. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, laban sakdanthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A direct quotation from a psalm. And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave, it to, gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let's see if whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice in the text reads, Yielded up his spirit. There was actually a prayer in that loud voice that the other gospels seemed to suggest The other thing he said. Go to Luke if you don't mind. Luke 23, 44. I'm going to suspend further conversation or comments on that statement, why have you forsaken me? Because I just want you to think about what is it to be a son to this father and submit to his will And to feel the weight of it all. And now bearing up under the physical torment of the cross. The fullness of that question is amazing. But in Luke 23, 44, similar. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus crying out with a loud voice said... By the way, the ninth hour you'll read in Acts chapter 3 is when the disciples or the apostles went up to the temple to pray. The ninth hour is the prescribed time to pray. 
Matthew and Luke both recite at the ninth hour, Jesus prays. It may have been the habit of the disciples and the apostles to do that in the ninth hour at the temple from Acts chapter 3 because of what they saw here with Jesus. Nevertheless, we know that he prayed and he said it this way, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. But remember that loud voice that he cried out with? We need to see John chapter 19. Will you turn there with me, please? John chapter 19 seems to give us that other thing he cried out with a loud voice. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A full or jaw full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. What a difference that must have tasted from the wine he made at the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2. What a difference where the head waiter goes. You've saved the best for last. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What if the best is not the wine of the wedding at Cana? What if the best is the sour wine on the cross? What if this last earthly thing that Jesus does indicates that he is receiving what the world gives him What we gave him, our sin. The best cleanses us. The worst is our worst. Maybe the sour wine is indicative of the ugliness and the awfulness of sin. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, and I think this is what, my own opinion, I can't verify any of this at all. I admit this to you in advance. What he cried out with a loud voice, I think is, it is finished. Telias. And he bowed his head, and are you ready for this? Breathed out his last. 1,500 some odd years earlier, maybe 1,400 years earlier, the law had been given to the Jews. And we entered in at that time to what is called the covenant of the law. And guess what happens? Right here at this moment, the old covenant expired with his last breath all the judgment that the law had been anticipating all the guilt that the law was attempting to address all the temporal sacrifices prescribed to deal with sin it's finished the judgment of the father upon the sin of the world in the person of jesus christ is finished There are no other sacrifices. There are no other saviors. It is finished. It's an amazing moment where we can punctuate the history of eternal, which has no time, perspective and earthly time pivots on the axis of the cross and the exaltation, the the exhaling of the law of the covenant. It's over in this moment. He's going to come back on Easter Sunday and be raised from the dead. Are you ready for this? He's going to breathe a new breath. And guess what that's going to give? Life. The new covenant in his blood will be a new life by faith. The turning point from the exhale 
to the inhale. Isn't that amazing to think about? Well, these are not quite the marginal notes of a book that I was interested in. I wanted to provide, and you're so patient to go with me on this little exhibition of looking at these lines, these words, the sentiment and the heart and the weight and the pain of the son as he's talking with his father, as the father responds, and then we see he submitted to his father's will, and he was judged for it. But in him, we were judged for it. You know what that means? That we have a God who is satisfied by the propitiation of the Son. He is satisfied. So I've spent a lot of time working through the Gospels. Now I want to go, don't worry, it won't take as long. Can we now look at two passages from the Apostles to see their theological summary? This is amazing. Will you go with me to Galatians chapter 3? This is the first, I believe, Drake, if you have a different opinion, correct me later, but I just don't do it in front of me. Uh, just tell them that, hey, David didn't get that one right. I think Galatians and James are the first two books written in the New Testament. I'm getting a nodding head from Drake, I feel good. And I think one of the things that's so important about the timing of this particular epistle is the Judaizing that was taking place of the new church. They were having to deal with the history of the Jewish faith. And Paul is very clear in his address to the Galatian church. It's about you are justified by faith alone. So he is going through a massive argument, maybe even the prototype or the, the predecessor to Romans. But in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, let me read. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Curse is everyone who does not abide by all things written in this book of the law to perform them. Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evidence. And why? He quotes, The righteous man shall live by faith, not the law. However, the law is not from faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having, are you ready for this? I underline this with intention. Having become a curse for us. That is substitutionary atonement. And we can live vicariously through that experience of the Savior because he did it for us. I am shocked to tell you that in the modern evangelical church, there is a diminishment of vicarious substitutionary atonement. It boggles my mind. It is the, one of the essential elements of Christology and soteriology, the doctrine of the work of Christ and the doctrine of salvation. We need a Savior to die in our place because we're not, we're not satisfying a holy God. Can't do it. He's not impressed with our efforts. The law tells us that. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. I'm going to go to one more passage. Actually, I'm going to go to two because I've got to do justice to this passage. I'm going to read this one. I'm going to ask you to go to Romans chapter 3 and we'll read this one together. I'm going to read this one in passing. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 reads like this. He, this is the Father, made him, that's the Son, who knew no sin, he's sinless because he's perfect, he's God, to be sin, there's imputation, on our behalf. One verse, that's only half the verse. The second, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's next week. There is, I tell you what, there is so much hanging on one verse, we may just do one verse next week. And I'll, we may be done by 11.30. Don't you believe it for a moment. But there's another issue at stake we've just got to deal with. How could, you ready for this? This is the issue that Paul is having to address. How in the world can a perfect holy judge let anyone into heaven? How is it possible? That's the big issue. If he is holy and he's righteous, nobody gets in. Period. So God has an issue in the courts. And it's his own character. If you're a holy God, how do you let anyone in? If you let anyone in, you're not holy because you didn't do what a holy God would do. That is judge all sin. Wait, I got an answer for you. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. This is an amazing story. This is the public justification uh, by way of supporting evidence that God is holy, that God is just, and God can do what? Justify people who are now, are you ready for this? Fit for heaven. How is he going to do this? Five verses, maybe six. Starting in verse 21 of Romans 3. But now apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been, I underline this, has been manifested. Righteousness has appeared, being witnessed. Remember that statement in Matthew chapter 17? Moses and Elijah, they were witnesses to Jesus. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. He's got two witnesses. He's got Moses. He's got Elijah. They're saying the same thing. This is him. So now we see being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God, what? Displayed publicly. Why did he do it in front of everyone? To demonstrate his justice was executed against the willing and, are you ready for this? Qualified sacrifice. God demanded perfection in the sacrifice, and only Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. And it was done publicly, attested by Roman officials. Mark's gospel says the Roman official standing there, truly, this man was the Son of God. The Romans are saying it. It was publicly testified. Displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to, are you again? Demonstrate. Do you feel like he's presenting evidence? He is. Here's exhibit A for the courts. Here's exhibit B for the courts. He's arguing as if he were Cicero in the forum Justifying and defending the plan. This is Paul. 
Because in the forbearance of God, he has passed over the sins previously committed by the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. It had to happen sometime, but if an eternal God comes into a temporary earth and does something that's eternal, it goes for all time, backward and forward. He got all of those sins of the saints before, and he got all of those sins that we need to have forgiven when we came to faith. He passed over. The earlier in anticipation of the later. So that he would be, and here's the great phrase that Paul coined that is just miraculous in its structure. He would be just, there's his character, is held in check, and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You know what a justifier is? I have the case of a guilty man whose sin and his debt has been paid. I, as the judge, am satisfied, and I can now declare that that person and that declaration, that statement is the justification that produces righteousness. And as question 34 anticipates with regard to sanctification, that righteousness becomes our sanctification in time. So the act of saying... I accept the sacrifice and the payment for your debt. I now apply that against your account. You are now, and I've justified you, you are now righteous. So the character of God is defended, and he is satisfied. It's no wonder, is it, that at the beginning of John's gospel, on the second day after they came to quiz John on the first Then on the second day, he looks up and he sees Jesus and he says, what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The next day, he comes up and here he is again. But John's got two disciples. And those two disciples are standing there with John. And John goes, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And the two disciples go, oh, And off they go to follow Jesus. And Jesus is walking away, which is ironic because now the lamb is leading. Usually it's the shepherd who's leading, but the lamb is leading. And as they're walking along, Jesus evidently spun on his heel. And for the first words in the gospel of John, and there are a lot of words of Jesus, but the first words quoted by John are these. What do you seek? Well, and they go, well, we're just wondering where you're living. It's kind of a lame answer. I think they weren't ready for the question. Well, sinner, your debt's been paid. The father is satisfied with the judgment against his son who submitted willingly, painfully, grievously. But he said it's finished. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is asking us this. What do you seek? What's our answer? We seek our Savior. We seek forgiveness. We seek restoration. We seek reconciliation. We seek, are you ready for this? Divine love that we can love others. We need to be, as he told Nicodemus, born again. 
And we can be by faith alone. You've got no other debt to pay. Jesus paid it all. We good with that? Do you trust that? If you are looking for something else, stop. Jesus says it's finished. If you think you need to do something else to satisfy the Father, stop. Jesus said it is finished. Trust it. Trust him. What do you seek? You know what it should be eventually? Whom do you seek? That'll come up later too. We, we, we would see Jesus, they would say to him. And that's when Jesus said the hour has arrived. The Gentiles are seeking him. Let me pray for us. Father, so grateful. So grateful that we can read this story, these incredible moments when you and your son talked about the things that y'all had ordained from eternity to deal with the problems that we create, the sin that we committed, the violation, the rebellion, the evil that we've done. But Father, we're so grateful that Jesus drank the cup dry. Even in the bitterness of his last moments, he had taken on everything he could, everything that he should. Father, that includes our sin. Every one of them. He took on our sin nature to change us. And Father, we know that when he said it is finished, it satisfied you. And now as we've read, you are just and you have justified us because we did all that you required, we believed. Father, thank you for the Lamb of the God that takes away the sin of the world. Thank you for presenting him in such a way that we can see and we can believe. Father, help us to glory in you as Jesus did, in your will as we submit to it to live in the fellowship that is here because you're satisfied. We thank you that you welcome us as your children. We thank you that we come in the name of your son, Jesus. And in him we pray. Amen.